Christopher. Yes. How are you, my friend? Oh, that was better energy. But for all of you that don't know, that we don't we don't always make the magic happen on the, the first, first revolution, you know. No. So now on take fourteen, we've got some <laughs> uh, we've got some better energy going in here. Take fourteen. Well, we we do actually have kind of an interesting show. A little probably slight deviation from what a little more tactical, I guess. Yeah, a little yeah. more tactical. Brought on a friend of ours that runs OPS staffing, Mitchell Riley. And it's kind of an interesting dialogue. We get into some things that's fairly fresh. There's some changes, particularly around uh, non-competes that yep. are relevant. And and we may see what we understand and know about non-competes go away entirely. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then in general, we're going to get into some best practices when partnering with a staffing company. You know, right now, especially finding that that upper tier talent, it's just challenge. That's and, true. And these guys can certainly do a lot to partner with us and help us in that place. I think the other piece that we dive into a bit with him is just understanding in that partnership kind of what our best, you know, what are our responsibilities yeah. as the employer and and then also, uh, you know, some of those things that we need to understand and be able to deploy if we're going to work well with a, a staffing partner. Yeah, I thought, you know, we covered some good ground. It's like everybody is talking to recruiters right now. We're all struggling to find great talent and you know people have positive and negative experiences yeah. of that whole recruiting process and i i kind of get in his grill a little bit yeah. i'm like hey this is you know this is a pretty common frustration for yeah. folks with recruiters and certainly some are are better than others some have more experience than others i said but what's your response to that you know and we kind of yeah. get into it with him and he's got good answers he's pretty he's really thoughtful about the business been in the industry for a long, long time, time. It was great. If you're thinking about using a recruiter for your next hire, this is probably a great episode to take in. And if you're already using a recruiter, it might give you some ideas of how you can better interface with them to get better results. 100%. 100%. All right. Before we get jamming, let's talk about our sponsor. So I'll start with Liftify. As you guys know, Liftify has just been crushing. There's been a bunch of recent activity. They did their roadshow. They met up with some of their current restoration clients that are just smashing it. And of course, Team Gutierrez is on their lead number one for the serve pro side of things. Trophy, baby. They got the first trophy, thousand reviews. So anyways, Liftify team has been on the road recognizing some of their clients as they're winning in that partnership with Liftify. Again, for those of you that haven't heard it yet, Liftify essentially is your partner for securing those five-star reviews, Google reviews specifically. And when we do that, when we smash that category... Then we see our SEO activity gain and we see our organic ranking, if yeah. you will, in that old search engines on the interwebs increase substantially. So liftify.com forward slash floodlight, find out what they will do for you to partner with you and, and start securing masses of five-star reviews. Yeah. And CNR Magazine, our friends over there, Michelle and Sarah and the rest of the crew... We say a lot of nice things about them because we really like them. You know, they're really easy to work with, you know, and, and all of us have vendors that we enjoy working with. CNR is one of our advertising partners and we really like them. On that level, you know, we think they're great to advertise with and work with. You know, Brandon and I both write articles every month for CNR magazine. We're really grateful to have that opportunity to, to share our stuff out there with the industry. They're a great team to work with. So if you're a vendor looking to connect with the restoration industry, you really ought to talk to them about some of their advertising options and promotional options. You know, as far as industry knowledge, I just saw Scott, you know, one of our other senior consultants, posting on LinkedIn to his audience, reminding them of the CE credits yep. that they can get through CNR, that's which right. I'm just like, that's really cool. You know, they're always looking, they've got these playbooks. I don't know if that's what they call them, but they have these industry, you know, business operations playbooks that they put out. I think they put out four or five so far. They're really good. I'm not saying that because I'm featured in one of them, but uh, <laughs> but seriously, they're just a great resource and kind of the water cooler of our industry. Absolutely. 100%. So check them out. All right. And last but certainly not least is Answer Force. As you guys know, Answer Force is partnering with restoration contractors to ensure that their intake, their inbound call is handled in a super professional and consistent way. So as you guys are facing storm events, as you're fa facing increases in, in workload, and or you're just one of those teams that's in the midst of growing and you're going from zero to hero, think about Answer Force. Boy, think about Answer Force as a partner. 
to just make sure that that intake process is consistent, it's smooth, that regardless of what's happening with the team or work volume, you've got the opportunity to ramp that up, ramp that down, and they'll make sure that they support you and your team as needed instead of you being stuck in these kind of long-term contracts with fixed expenses. And a business, as you guys all well know, that is just constantly changing and fairly dynamic. I want to say something too, because I, to me, I think as business owners and leaders and whatnot, we all understand that there is no such thing as a perfect service provider. And the credibility and the reliability and the, the character of that company comes out when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And recently, we had a client that had an experience that wasn't rad, came to us, told us about it. We immediately forwarded that information to our friends at Answer for us, And I was really impressed with their response. I mean, probably within the hour of sending that email, they immediately popped back and said, Hey, totally get it. We've made a series of different switches and changes in the business to deal with that thing. I'd love... Let's jump on a call and let me talk about it and kind of walk you through with the changes we've made since that thing happened. Yeah. Just so you guys feel confident you know, that, uh, that you're recommending a great service. It's and I just, yeah. I just thought, man, that's the mark of a great vendor, yeah. right? Is when something comes up. Because I mean, shoot... We make mistakes in our consulting company. Our clients all make... like We all make mistakes. We all have errors. We all have parts of our process that need to be improved, right? I just thought, okay, that's one of the reasons why you and I have so much confidence in that, right. in that company as a, as a sponsor. So I just thought that was worth mentioning. So answerforce.com forward slash floodlight. Great people to deal with. Johnny on the spot. They care about the service quality they're delivering. And it's an essential function. Absolutely. Right. For I, I would say most of our businesses need to have a call answering partner right. that we can fall back to or we can rely on. So 100%. All right, my man, let's get into this one. Right on. Welcome back to the Head, Heart, and Boots podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Brandon. Join us as we wrestle with what it takes to transform ourselves and the businesses we lead. Man, I love this industry. Well, Mitchell, sir, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Appreciate you having the time to come on to the show. We're going to get into some interesting topics. So again, thanks for hanging with us, man. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing me on, guys. All right. So obviously, people know the cat's out of the bag that we're, you know, that you do what you do, i.e. you are a recruiter specifically for the disaster restoration space. And as part of that history, you've learned a lot about the client base that you serve. And you you bring an interesting perspective because you're not a jack of all trades. You really are focused on this group and can speak very deeply to the things that you probably grow frustrated with alongside of your clients. And we want to dig into some of that stuff. I think this is the first time that our audience will will actually hear what it looks like or feels like from the other side of the table, mm-hmm. right? We have our woes, but we don't always understand what it is that our service provider or our partners are going through as they try to help us win. So I think this will be a pretty meaningful conversation. You came to the table with some concepts that you wanted to dig into and we're excited about it. And so I'm going to let you set the pace in terms of some of these things that you're really wrestling with in your in your zone. And then I think Chris and I's job will be, let's pull some more detail out of this and really unpack what it is that you're wrestling with in your head. I have a little bit of a deviation from that just to, just to get it. And, and here's the only thing. I think the industry right now is so desperate for talent. Well, of course, it has been for a long time here. But the industry is desperate for talent and the industry has a wide range of experiences with headhunters, and recruiters. And I think I, I just want to get the elephant out of the room. I want you to be able to address the elephant in the room is that right now in particular with talent being so scarce at really all levels of recruiting, not everybody has the best experience with recruiters. I want to address probably the chief complaint that we've heard. So the audience can settle back in their chair yeah, and, and hear sure. the rest of what, what you have to say. Because I think you brought up some really important topics. But you know, one of the most common things that we hear is that they get sent candidates that either just by looking at the resume and background and experience relative to the role, they look at it and they're like, why the hell did they send me? Like this person is not qualified for the role that we're hiring for. So number one, but then at at times it happens in the resume or when the person shows up to the interview and they're like, 
why in the world would they send me this this person for this role? So so I think there's with with some people and some companies, and it's not an insignificant amount, there's this sense that I'm paying a whole bunch for people to send me kind of rando candidates that aren't really optimal for the position I'm hiring for or the company culture that I'm building. And so there, there just seems to be a real generic approach or a perception that everybody's kind of doing the same old thing and the quality of candidates that they're putting in front of me is, eh, but I kind of have to do it because I don't have time. I don't have time and we're not getting the results we need from Indeed. And so it's almost like there are a lot of people who look at the recruiting industry and the headhunting industry as kind of a necessary evil at some level for all of our most common hires. I think it's probably different when we get to maybe you know, uh, C-suite roles we're hiring for, that kind of stuff. But in all the kind of major roles we're recruiting for, that's a sentiment that Brandon and I hear pretty consistently. And what's your view of that? I know you see that up close and with, with competitors and, and you hear probably that feedback from other clients coming to you. But how do you guys differentiate yourself or how have you adapted your process to create more valuable connections for your clients? Man, I I love this topic because it's kind of what spurred me to reach out to Brandon in the first place. And like the real elephant in the room is recruiters suck. Like we do as a whole, as a group, we're terrible. And the reason I say that is because there's such a low barrier of entry into what I do, right? Into being a recruiter. Anyone with internet, a cell phone and a laptop can call themselves a recruiter. But how you can differentiate and some of the topics we'll dive into here soon is like how to interview a recruiter. How can you tell you're hiring the right one? I don't really want to iron into like what we do differently because I'd like to kind of keep it more about just educating the clients. We could do a whole topic and talk a whole bunch about us. But I feel like... In restoration, I get that feedback all the time. And it was y'all's project management podcast that spurred me to think, we are good at finding talent, but we are totally dropping the ball on delivering an exceptional client experience, right? Which was a big thing in y'all's project management podcast. And I'm like, man, our ATS system, our software, terrible. Let's trash it. Let's find another one. I need reports, I need data, I need a client portal so they can come in, see where we're at, what we're doing at all times. Part of the problems and what you're describing are just about the talent pool and the people that you get to respond. Sometimes when you dive in and you're looking for an estimator in any given market, your client has an expectation that I need this super sharp program estimator that can write a million and a half dollars of business do it at over a 40% margin. And the only person that you're able to get to respond is, you know, really more C. They're on the low end of that bell curve. So a lot of recruiters feel like I have to present something and they probably take the wrong approach when presenting the candidate. They might oversell them. They might overfluff them. They don't point out the red flags. If you're really recruiting, you're building a relationship with both sides and you're trying to make sure the candidate has the right opportunity for them because this is a candidate-driven market and the client is getting something that has value for them and that fits their need. So if I find an estimator that maybe lacking a little bit on their margins or whatever it might be, it's important to bring that to their attention so you're not overselling something and giving them you know, a candidate that doesn't check all the boxes, right? Let him know, hey, this is a guy we found. He checks two of the three, but this is where he's missing. This is where he needs help. This is what you should dig into. And if you're doing that well, they're probably going to go into the interview already knowing this is what I need to talk about, right? Yeah. Like uncover that thing, focus some attention, additional attention into that category. Yeah. And there's so many, what I like to call, throwing jello at a wall recruiters out there like there's all these rpos you can outsource your sourcing overseas to an rpo that's gonna get you resumes they're gonna throw you a bunch of junk and 
recruiters are just throwing Joe at the wall to see what sticks, you know, and, and that's not what we do. That's not what a lot of good agencies should do. And I hope by the end of this podcast, we've kind of educated some clients on like, hey, what do you need to look for when you're going and selecting an agency and all that type of good stuff? Yeah, I think that's a good segue into something that you had brought up to us earlier offline. It's kind of like what we were like, okay, let's get a show put together because I think this is solid. And I and again, I think the reminder is even for those that are, regardless if you're working with a consulting or a, a recruiting partner or not, there's these troubled spots inside our organizations that make recruiting and onboarding very difficult. And they almost get highlighted or compounded when you start working with a professional organization to give you some opportunities, some leads, right? And I know that that was a thing for you that you, you know, hopefully I'm not letting too much out here, but in part of our, we made a recommendation. We referred you to a team and you did some homework on that team. It wasn't a, yeah, make the call, make the connection. You did your own homework on that team and you had identified through some previous exchanges and notes some things that were red flags for you about them as an employer. And we're not talking about heinous stuff. We're not talking about criminal things, anything like that. It's the way that they operated. You knew you were almost throwing good seed on bad soil, even if you found them. And I think what stood out to me is a conviction that you have between a duality, a working professional relationship with both the prospect that you've put your reputation on the line for, as well as the organization that you're attempting to recruit to fill those seats. So let's start there and see what we can uncover there. But from your perspective, highlight for us the top two, three, four things that you witness on the other side of the table that really crushes the outcome that a team could ultimately have, right? Yeah. I mean, so for a recruiter to be successful, it has to be a two-way street. If you hire three, four agencies and throw us all out there in the same talent pool, all we're doing is muddying the water. I like to use fishing as a good analogy, right? If it's rained and everything's muddy, you've already messaged five candidates or you know, my, my competitors have messaged three or four candidates. Imagine you're on the other side of the table. You're the candidate. You're not really looking for a job. And all of a sudden, they've got hit with three or four LinkedIn. Or if they're good, they're getting their emails and they're getting direct emails. You're getting three or four emails, in-mails, all of this same position, the same highlight. It's like, what company's out here? Who's desperate? You know, so that that's one problem I see pretty often is just over hiring the staffing firms thinking, if I get three, four, five of you guys going at it, whoever gets me the best results, great. You're the winner. Here you go. And all you're really doing is creating a really bad candidate experience and a really bad reputation amongst the candidates. People talk to each other, you know? So I run into that a lot. Another thing, and this is probably my number one pet peeve, is like you have to give the recruiters feedback in a timely manner for a number of reasons. Just because I sent an estimator in that they feel like this guy is missing a whole bunch of things, great. Tell them why. Don't just say this isn't the right fit. Say this isn't the right fit for these reasons. The more you talk to them, the more you work together, the more accurate your submittals get. I have a client that we've worked together for six years. And when I tell you, we send one or two candidates on any job and they're hired. Now we don't fill every position for them, but when I do send a resume to them, I know exactly what they want. I know their expectations. I know what fits in their work chart. And it's like, it's money, but it took a long time to get to that point. Right. Another thing that I see a lot of times is like knowing when to move on. If you feel like you're not getting the right experience with the agency that you have, don't feel bad about just shutting them down and saying, Hey guys, this isn't working. We're going to go a different direction in our search and go talk to another agency. Definitely. You got to pay attention to the guarantee periods. Every agency should give you a guarantee. If they don't, 
They're not putting their money where their mouth is. Don't abuse it, but know it's there for a reason and use it when you need to. If you have question marks on the candidate after you've hired them, definitely express that to your agency. And then finally, like be careful of engagement fees, retainers, however it's put. I'm sure a lot of recruiters are like cringing at this, but we don't like to do it. We don't believe in it. The only time it makes sense in certain areas, the only time we personally do it is when we're in a market that's like such a big metropolitan market. I know I can get you some candidates. You have such a high need. You need my undivided attention. You can't wait two weeks for me to source this job and go in the order. You need to jump the order. So great. We'll take a piece of our fee in the future, but we're going to guarantee you we get you two people with the right skill sets or we give you your money back. But that's our skin in the game to get us going, to jump the line and get going right away. It's a non-refundable retainer in this small of an industry. That's not something I would consider or do. A lot of agencies don't love hearing that, but as long as my clients live up to give me timely feedback, keep an open line of communication, interview the first two people I send, and then get me that feedback so I can calibrate my results, that's all I ask for. What do you think from like your perspective? What are the two or three items that you watch though, these receiving firms, these companies that have hired you, you send or put a, a good candidate or a series of candidates in front of them? What are the top three things that we do wrong in this partnership that ultimately dilute or delete the outcome we could have received from that prospect that you handed over? Sure. Like some of the biggest problems we have right now aren't finding candidates with the hard skill sets. We've been doing this for a decade. Like Brandon, you've been on the other side of the table in two different spots with us. So you, you know we know what we're looking at. And there's plenty of other agencies out there that specialize in this niche that are as good as us at that. The real challenge becomes like interviewing them in a timely manner. How long does it take you to, to get them to that? Keep in mind, like you're courting somebody to come to your company. So if you're making a wait two, three weeks to even talk to you, their interest is waning. Be yeah. similar to dating. Yeah. You know, if you go out and, and you're gonna have a date. Oh, but I'm busy for three weeks. You don't think they're out there continuing looking? That's a big, big, big problem. The second biggest problem is just like that follow-up and then having a consistent process. I see so many companies out there that don't have an ironed out consistent interview process. And our our intake process takes like an hour to go through. Some of y'all's clients have done it. They're champions. I love the fact that they'll sit there and answer my questions for an hour. But a lot of the questions I ask are really difficult and a lot of companies don't have the answer for them. Even things as simple as like, how do you grade your hire? When you're done, you've hired them. They pass the guarantee a year later. How do you grade them? Do you send any feedback to that agency on like, hey, this guy's doing these things really well? I mean, we're all taking an educated guess at the hiring, but you can identify like some key factors that pop up amongst estimators or amongst project managers to help you iron out and make sure you're asking the right questions to ensure they have the right hard skill set. Soft skills are so hard to get to, you know, figure out if they have those. We're all taking an educated guess there. Yeah, we've been wrestling with that quite a bit ourselves. All right, Head Heart and Boots listeners, we wanted to stop here just a moment and thank our underwriting sponsor, Bloodlight Consulting Group. <laughs> as, as all of you know, right? You know, Brandon and I, this is our passion project, Head, Heart & Boots is, but it's also a way more and more that our consulting clients find us. And in effect, they interview us, right? Those of you who've been listening to the show for a while, you get to know who we are, right? What we're about. So if Head, Heart & Boots is valuable to you, one of the best things you can do is share it with your friends. And it's been incredible to watch just the audience grow. And we still get text messages from many of you about shows that you really like and impacted you. So that's number one. And please keep doing that. Many of you have been huge advocates of the show. We also just want to remind you too, if you're a restoration company owner and you're interested in a partner in your growth, you want some help building out systems, developing your leadership teams, helping set up the infrastructure for you to scale and grow into the company that you're trying to build. That's what we do. That's what we do is we come alongside restoration company leaders. We help equip them. 
and we help support them in that growth trajectory. So if you're looking for that, go to floodlightgrp.com. Potentially, we could be a great match for each other. Another way that we really do serve our client base and our sphere of influence is through our premier partners. We work really hard to vet those folks that we believe bring a level of value to the industry that it can really be leveraged in a way to have a sincere, positive impact on your business. We take that very seriously. The, the folks that we create those kind of ongoing partnerships, that's not a check the box kind of scenario. It's, it's we really see strategic alignment in the value that they bring we see value in the way that their leadership teams and their partners are developed. And we've done very sincere work of ensuring that these folks that we introduce our clients and our sphere to can actually create vetted value. So go check out floodlightgrp.com forward slash premier slash partners and see if there's some folks on there that you can connect with and begin developing some other resources to support your growth and your business. You know, one of the big topics that that you had mentioned or highlighted that I think is really critical for us to take some time to uncover is there's some significant changes coming down the pipeline in regard to non-competes. Mm. So I, I definitely want to jump into that next, mainly because I think it's a it's more of a technical perspective for us to pay attention to that a lot of us aren't probably aware of. Just one couple things I, I still want to kind of unpack with this initial message. And that is so. What I'm hearing you say is is there's a reality that you're. This is a team sport. So even if we're working with a recruiting team, or even if we're not, there's this idea that we're going to do something. It's going to create a lead or a prospect that we ultimately pull into our system. We can't be a victim of circumstance, meaning we can't place the blame of all those friction points in our onboarding and interview process on the candidate or quality of candidate. Right? There's this reality that. If we're going to partner with a recruiting firm, we have to do what's necessary in our own house to make sure that that money spent in this recruiting relationship is as effective as possible. And we own a fairly significant portion of that, if not the bulk of that experience is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a recruiter, I totally understand that my candidate better be worth the fee that you're going to pay out. And they're not always worth it. And that's perfectly fine. Like there's only so many A's and B's in a marketplace and not all of them are looking to make a move at that given time. Is your need high enough to hire a C and develop them and turn them into an A and B? Is your organization even built to do that? If they're not, be picky. If you can't develop C's and turn them into B's and A's, that's a whole different topic, a whole different conversation, right? I feel like every company should be able to do that. But the reality is sometimes like your need is so great, you need a more impact player, but you have to figure out like, is my package, is what I'm offering, is the bait I'm giving them good enough to do that? A good agency is going to educate you on that on the front end. Like if I don't feel like your money is attractive enough or your package or your culture or your reputation, whatever it might be, a good agency is going to tell you up front, look, Brandon, here's the concerns I have. And here's probably the types of candidates you're going to see. Odds are we're only going to bring average to the table because you're average on your compensation. So like, let's get the expectations right now on what you're going to see from us and the types of candidates you'll see. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully an A responds, but we all know that's not how it works. Like nobody makes a move to go backwards. They all are looking for something, whether it's career opportunity, culture. But right now, it's money. Inflation is out of control. People are struggling to make ends meet. It's all about money. No matter what they tell you, it's boiling down to money. They answered that job post for one thing, compensation. Yeah. 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 Culture component may be an influencer for certain. But we need people to go backwards for a culture that they don't actually know is going to be what we're selling. Which is very common. I mean, I think your your typical entrepreneur, and I've certainly, you know, played this game or tried to, where it's like selling people on the quote opportunity in lieu of a market-based, you know, compensation or hey, you're gonna start here with us, but oh my gosh, you know, this is this is the opportunity in front of you. And every single time I've played that game, it's bit me. And it's bit the other person yeah. too, right? Because then you're you're starting from behind. Like now, like I as the employer 
I've got to prove that out in terms of the opportunity I'm presenting to them, which which often is going to include really hands-on mentoring and guidance and all that stuff. And it's like many of us who are playing the whole, can I get them in cheap and they can grow with me game? We're not prepared to give them the hands-on stewarding and coaching and mentoring to create that opportunity for them. And so it's a big, big old bait and switch is what it ends up being yeah. for a lot of us that have tried to play that game maybe early on in our business or we're, we're trying to grow maybe in front of our cash flow. And so we're trying to buy people cheap and stoke the fire that way. But in the end, we get bitten because they're yeah. stressed over the money. They're not as tuned in and focused on the role. Right, because now they have a financial strain that they're having to explain to their spouse. Eh, but the opportunity, but the opportunity, you know, and and uh, it tends to create the the uh, the wrong dynamic. You yeah, have highlighted this, Mitchell. You highlighted this concern around negotiating an offer. Talk to us about that because yeah. I think it really lines up with what we're you know what we're the kind of this vein we're in. I was just about to say that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really profound thought. There's kind of two schools to you get to the point you're ready to make an offer, right? You know, you can give project manager $80,000. So let's start the offer at 70, hoping we settle at 75. If we have to go to 80, it's in our budget. Great. We make the offer, we negotiate, we meet in the middle. Everyone gets happy. Everyone's like, yay, we made our hire. That's certainly one route you can go. I would strongly recommend not to. The second route is you come in with your strongest offer out the gate. You let your candidate know this isn't the top end of our comp, but this is the top end of where we bring somebody in at for two. You don't tell them this, but it's for two reasons. One, you're putting a good taste in their mouth. You're putting your best foot forward. That's the obvious one everybody thinks about. But secondly, when you're negotiating with a candidate, you are changing the power dynamic in your relationship forever. You've told that candidate that when in the future, when you want to negotiate, I'm already negotiable and I've already let you win. So subconsciously, they think they're going to win the next time. When they come for a raise, they expect it. And when they don't get it, they're like, whoa, totally set back. So it's a huge power dynamic shift that a lot of hiring managers stumble into. There are going to be exceptions to that, right? Like if you didn't properly convey your bonus program to it and you're hiring a salesperson and they sit down and they compare your bonus plan to theirs and they realize, holy moly, I'm going to make $20,000 less or $10,000 less. I need to build this in somewhere else. Okay, great. We just didn't cover this enough up front. Or like vacation, little, little, what I like to call just the tiny hurdles that are easy ones. But the big one is the base salary that I see a lot of companies do is like, let's start here and negotiate up rather than just put our best foot forward. And it's all to save what $5,000. It's just not worth it to one, put a bad taste in their mouth and two, change your power dynamic forever with that employee. You know, it's interesting. We we actually not that long ago as a team had a similar experience. And I'm I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail, but point was we didn't quite make it. We couldn't meet on that number. And Chris and I had a real clear stance and why it was supported internally. Like this is part of uh this as it relates to our strategy, we know we're not in a position right now to negotiate on top end spend for some of these salaries. This is what we have. And what's interesting is that when you set that tone, I actually believe there's some interesting respect dynamics that come into place. And you don't do it in a dirty way. It's kind of like what you said is, you were honest about, hey, this is not the top for the position, but this is the top for when we onboard somebody. And trailing that are these things that you can do that you have full control over that as those metric are met, you automatically then become viable for this increase or this pay window. And we teach that a lot with teams of create career paths that have pay windows based on certifications or training, right? Under that, that whatever, that, that title, that working title, whatever. But in this particular event, you know, it was unfortunate. We were, we were disappointed that we couldn't come to an agreement. But I think there's some interesting respect dynamics now between that party and us 
because we're just speaking in the truth. It, it wasn't a right or wrong. It wasn't a value statement. It, was it wasn't just a like, tactic. Yeah, it wasn't a tactic. That's it. And I think that's what you're saying is yeah. let's not play a game because everybody knows we're playing a game and they go into that relationship now mistrusting from the very onset, right? It's not even the power dynamic or it's, it's and. It's there's this power dynamic and then I think there's this respect trust dynamic that people are screwing with and we don't really know it. Like we're not cognizant to it. Yeah. You know, that, that point you just touched on, on like a path for compensation advancement, like hit these windows and we'll set that up. That's so rare in this industry. It's not in others. Like one of my dear friends is a graphic designer and he's set up that way, right? Like you, here's how you move up to the next level, a senior an executive, it's set up that way in the recruiting world. I don't ever hear that about estimators, project managers, mitigation managers, right? Like, what do you need to do this? Not totally across the board. There's definitely companies out there that do that, that have that, you know, estimator, project director, then there's the senior, then there's the next level, et cetera, et cetera. And here's your goals and how you move up. And here's the bases and those goals. And I think it makes their organizations infinitely more attractive. And then take that down to the technician level, right? Like we talked about this for a long time, which is a whole other topic. Like 18 to 25 an hour for a tech is fine. But like, where do they go from there? How do you keep them? How do you retain them? Like it's all about money for hourly employees and they're struggling to make ends meet if they're in that range. Yeah, inflation has just smashed, you know, I think our concept of what reasonable pay is. And when I know that this is such a common pain point when McDonald's is paying 15 bucks an hour and we're going to ask somebody to crawl through sewage and crawl spaces for that 15 bucks an hour, like it ain't going to happen. It's not a culture thing. It's that whole, uh, what is it, Maslow's hierarchy needs. Like, Like if they can't make it to Friday, there's no headspace for them to think about legacy and culture. Like we got to meet some basic, you know, metric before they can give a crap about some of these other elements, right? Well, I think in that tech space, but really across the board too, here's the other factor, kind of the other side of the coin, right? Is could you afford to pay people more if their overall work product was significantly better, right? Well, the answer is, of course, almost always yes. Like, okay, and, and then you start to ask yourself the question, okay, if I'm paying somebody this, what do I need to get from that individual for this? I think the problem that we find is, is not that we can't pay techs enough or PMs enough or anybody else enough, is that we're not disciplined to get rid of people when they don't meet the standard. So then you end up with a whole bunch of overpaid roles that aren't meeting standard and aren't producing the EBITDA that you need them to in order to have a growing, thriving business. You have bloated, overcompensated people that aren't delivering the goods. But if you're disciplined in getting rid of those people that don't show up, don't meet the standard, well, then you can continue to compensate at that level if you're getting the work product you know, out of that. And we, we were talking about just this reality, and I think it's related enough that you know, oftentimes we, we call it desperation brain. And I think it permeates everything we're talking about. We have butts we need to have in seats. And so we allow toxic people, underproducing people, you know, to not meeting the standard to stay online because we can't find somebody to replace them. But what we've seen over and over and over again, you got a team of five techs and two of them are toxic. You know, they're, they're not meeting standard, their work product is terrible, and they're causing strife and anxiety and frustration across the team. We've seen it over and over again. You get rid of those two and that remaining team of three can easily cover the work product of those missing roles. Oftentimes, you don't even need to replace them, you know, because the esprit de corps, the shared values, they relate to one another, the work ethic, everything else. That team of three can do more than the team of five that was underperforming in their, in their seat. You know what I mean? But, it, but it's so hard. It is so hard. Like Brandon and I felt it and we see it on the eyes of our clients. It's so hard to maintain that discipline in today's environment where it feels like if we get rid of these people, we won't have enough people on the bus to do the work that's coming in. And that's scary. And how's that going to affect our business and all the things, you know? 
Yeah, it's terrifying. You know, fun fact, five, there's a study that there's four or five most anxiety-ridden things, things that cause people the most anxiety. One is a job change. Two is marriage, divorce, and children, right? So going back to like the process and why it's hard to get passive, really good candidates, it's terrifying for people to change jobs. And if you're a hiring manager or you're a recruiter, like me, you kind of become like callous to that. And it's really important that you think about that and treat those people with respect. And we all give them the feedback and the time of day that they deserve because they took time out of their day to talk to me, time out of the day to potentially talk to my partner or our other recruiter before they even took the time out of their day to meet with you. And then when they get ghosted, it's like, just such a bombshell for them. And we're really diligent about making sure we tell our candidates something. And that something might be as simple as, I'm really sorry, but our client hasn't gotten back to us. I'll keep following up on it with them every week. But at the end of the day, I might not ever get anything. And I see that happen with about 50% of the candidates that I send in. So when companies and hiring managers are like, why can't I get people to come talk to me? We've created this horrible cycle. Somebody in the three, whether it's hiring manager, recruiter, candidate, is ghosting each other and not treating each other in their time with respect. Even if they were a terrible interview, you can still send them a note that says, thanks for your time. This isn't the right fit. We're going to go in another direction. Uh, you don't have to tell them why. You should absolutely tell your recruiter they should keep it confidential and know not to say that and just give them a professional letdown response. But it's really important that we all work together to make sure those candidates are given a great experience. You'll get more people to talk if we all start working together and do that. That's interesting, like that reference, because I think it reminds me, Chris, of what sales can element of that kind of similar theory. But it really is interesting how... It just like in a sales mechanism, somebody's not going to switch vendors unless there's the pain, right? Chris really hammers on that. Like they need a reason internally that's shinier and brighter than your toolkit to make this change. They, they're running from something. Well, and I yeah. think our employees, like or our prospects, like we're not hiring people that are unemployed. We already know that. Like it doesn't even need to be said. If the people we want are are actually employed. They may not be happily employed, but they're probably so busy because that team's understaffed and we're over leveraging the existing team that we have. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason that potentially is their pain, right? But that's the world they live in. And literally Monday happens. The next thing they know, it, it's Friday. They're going to try to have a couple IPAs to close out the week and get a grip on life. And then Monday is going to hit them in the face again. And the whole cycle is going to start over. And somewhere in there, you're trying to get this message that says, hey, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes. Come talk to me. And then you sit on that prospect for three, four, five days. What do we expect to happen? Right? Like the only people that have time to hang out with us are not the employees we're looking for. Right? So I think yeah. it's interesting what you're highlighting is we need to learn the pain of our prospects. So if we identify in this vetting process that there are people, then we need to be able to provide a solution to their known pain. What is that? The hours, the inconsistency, the pay rates, the career pathing, whatever, right? But we can't sell to that if we don't know what their pain point is. Yeah. It's the agency's job to identify that. You're absolutely right. So a candidate, there's something making them look, there's something they don't like where they're at. Your compensation package is what makes them say, hmm, interesting. But then if your organization isn't prepared to fix the problems they're experiencing where they're at, you're not closing the deal, right? You didn't fix their pain points. So like your culture, your processes and systems, your career advancement opportunities, those are all great. Those aren't going to get them to say, yeah, I want to talk to you. But those same things are what get them to be open to an opportunity later or where they're experiencing from the company they're at. It's probably one of those three things that made them say, hmm, 
this message for five or $10,000 more sounds pretty interesting. Let me go talk to Mitchell and see what this is all about. Yeah, you're spot on. It's, it's still sales, even though it's people. Your commercial sales sounds like it translates exactly to recruiting. Mm, love that. Okay, dude, I want to make sure that we have time to get into this more tactical subject matter. What is going on with this non-compete scenario? What have you learned? What are you hearing? How does it affect us as restorers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love this topic. So the FTC, if nobody's aware, is going to be voting if they're going to make non-competes illegal, essentially. They're going to go away. It's what everything I've read and all the rumors I've heard and podcasts I've listened to. Because as a recruiter, I hate non-competes. As your employers, you probably love them. I think they're just not fair. I think non-solicitations should hold up, but that's just my 10 cents. So in January, they're going to vote. Will you explain the difference between the non-solicitation and the non-compete? What's happening there? Great question. So non-solicitation protects the employee who's leaving the firm. It protects your, your clients and your proprietary information, your systems, your softwares, things like that. They are not allowed to take any of that with them. Most non-competes have that baked in as well as you just can't go work for my competitor in X radius for X amount of time. That's a whole non-compete. And then there's non-solicitations as well, which is you can't go after my clients, my employees, or take any of our trademarked or you know proprietary information with you. It's only the non-compete aspect that's expected to get made illegal. So you can leave your company, go work for a competitor, and the non-compete portion is expected to not hold up. Now, it's not going to get voted on until January of 2024, which is kind of a weird timing, right around election time. Might all be total fluff, might not happen. But if it does pass, all non-competes go out the window in March of 2024. Interesting. Because this has been a scenario where I think some employers, it's it's all been a state-driven perspective, right? What's happening in that state? Are there precedents that have been set that that state tends to lean harder into protecting those? Those states you know, lean harder into not, whatever the case may be. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that any existing non-compete that we may or may not be leveraging on, those might become completely irrelevant, but we still have this opportunity to legitimize or maximize what's happening from a non-solicitation, right? Like, give me your perspective on those two. Why do you favor one over the other? What is it specifically that kind of rubs you wrong with the non-compete? Of course, of course. Like, man, this is a, a horrible analogy, but it's like almost indentured slavery, right? Like, I'm paying you to work for me. You have developed this awesome skill in Xactimate that you can only use if you like the contractor side with a competing contractor. But my non-compete is going to prevent you from going to earn a living wage, provide for your family at another competitor, even if whatever I'm doing in my house is making you unhappy. That should not be allowed. It's To me, it's just ethically wrong. I also think it's ethically wrong for that person leaving to be like, Hey, Johnny, I found this new spot over here. Want to come with me? Or, Hey, Susie, I know you're our biggest client, but I'm going to this great new company. Want to come with me? That's the non-solicitation portion. The non-compete is just preventing an employee from going to work for another employer just because you have a piece of paper that they signed. And to me, that's just wrong. It's not fair to people that you know are just trying to find a better opportunity for them and their family. It's interesting because I feel like my working experience with these two things is it's posturing. Not so much with a non-compete. I think a legitimate non-compete that's enforceable by law, it really can be a pretty debilitating scenario, right? Like, But in regard to soliciting fellow team members and soliciting clients... At the end of the day, my experience has been it's happening anyways. They just use some less obvious ways or language to get her done, right? Like the reality of it is, if I go to another organization and I tell the owner there, hey, 
you know, I've talked to Jacob a couple times and Jacob's ready to make the move, but I'm not going to send him a text on my own cell phone. Well, then new owner reaches out to Jacob where he just happened to get his phone number and he's able to make that connection, blah, blah, blah. So I think I'm not necessarily arguing against what you're saying. I think what I'm more keyed in on is that we tend to leverage tools and resources to protect us from our own failure to be a good, responsible employer. I was just going to say that. It's like if people are leaving you and we're wrestling with non-solicitations and non-competes, it tends to be more of a byproduct of something being broken in the system or the culture or the way we hired, the way we onboarded, the way we trained, more so than anything. Like I, I feel like at times we you know, wreck our ships on the wrong shoreline. And, and I almost wonder if something like this is just one more movement towards, look, we have to be responsible for our own house and control the things that we can control. And it's just one more opportunity for a, a systematic thing to no longer be leveraged in our favor in terms of how we are responsible for our own house. I don't, I don't know how you take that when I say that, Mitchell. I don't know what your two cents on that is, but... Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. My opinion, if any recruiter that worked for us or sourcer, if you're not happy and want to go to another firm, by all means, go to another firm. It's my job as their boss to be constantly pursuing them. You pursued them to get them to come work for you. Why did it stop there? Just like in a marriage or any other relationship, a friendship, if you don't put any effort in constantly to make them happy, make them want to stay, understand why they might not be happy or what's making them tick, then it's going to fail, right? It's no different. Marriage and work is a terrible analogy, but it's still a relationship and relationships are relationships, right? And they take work from both parties. So if you stop doing that and ignore them, of course, they're going to be able to look other places. I think it's a great relationship. We're spending as much or more time with these people as they are with their spouses or significant others or children, right? I mean, that's just a yeah. fact of <laughs> of the schedule, you know? So that, I think it's a great, I think it's a great analogy, man. If you don't steward the relationships around you well, well, how can you blame them for wanting to go elsewhere where they're going to receive more attention, more care, more consideration, right? Well, it's kind of funny too, if we think about that whole pain point piece that you brought up, Mitchell is, okay, so if we're not necessarily recognizing why somebody left for a buck 50. Like when I legitimately have someone cross the street for a dollar 50, I need to go back to the fact that look, people do not make a change unless the pain that they're exiting is more profound than the thing they're taking a chance on. Which then comes back again, like is a dollar 50 enough to make someone jump ship? Potentially. But my gut says there's more pain in the system that made that dollar fifty attractive enough for someone to jump on. It could be the pain was just the dollar fifty, but my gut says that normally there's something a bit more comprehensive under the surface that drove them or made them willing to jump for that that exchange. I don't know what you see. What do you see on your end? Yeah, like I think you have to se- separate like hourly employees from salaried. Isn't it something like now it's like close to $70,000 is what your household income needs to be to buy a home in America. So like if somebody is struggling to rent, pay bills, feed their kids and they're an hourly employee, they're absolutely jumping for a dollar more because every other pain in their life it pales in comparison to what they're struggling with on their budget. Now, when you jump up over that threshold, if I'm the primary breadwinner in my house, I make over $70,000. I live in an area I can buy a house. I'm happy and living this great American dream, right? For me, then it's like all of those pains might be different. Like now all of a sudden career, culture, all the other things matter. But when you're talking about hourly employees, if they're, you know, 20 to $25 an hour and they're the primary breadwinner and the only one going to work, like, could you live off of that? And how, you know, like that's such a real concept. What can you do to ease their burdens? 
like they have an emergency, have an emergency fund for them. Take care of your people, go the extra mile, and you'll stop losing hourly employees. Like that's probably their biggest pain point in their life, more than likely, is money. So of course they leave for a dollar fifty. Now, in a different compensation range, all of a sudden your pain points are totally different. Money might not be as big of a pain for you because you're fine day to day, but they might not be. That's an interesting checkpoint, that 70K. I like the fact... I think that's what it is. Somebody's going to fact check well, me now. I, I mean, but I want to say it's like right around there now. It's a big figure. It's like, whoa, that's how much it takes. That's oh, a lot. And it's, and it's way... And you, and you consider some of the more metropolitan or oh, affluent communities coastal. that many of us are operating in, we still need the same frontline team members in those ranges. And to sort of buy a house in Corvallis, where we're you know hailing from right now, it's probably closer to $100,000 to buy a home, at least today, certainly. Yeah. Man, that is a really important perspective. Because you do the math and it's like, okay, somebody 40-hour work week, a dollar increase in pay, extra $160 a month. That's like back to school close in August, September. Like that, like, and there are people, I think we can become numb to this as, as you get into higher income levels beyond that, like you say, where we can start worrying about bigger things in life. But boy, when you're in that 50, 60, 70,000 household income range, 160 bucks. Yeah. Like it matters. I, yeah. I can remember that. I can remember that stage of our life. And it was like, yeah, it was a real thing worth moving for, you know, I, I think to a lot of people. So, so one of the things that brings up in my mind, Mitchell, is just kind of this idea then of, you know, tactically, okay. We do need to be considering a split brain here of, okay, when we're talking about salaried positions and those roles that tend to fall in the salary kind of scale, they're probably breaking or getting pretty darn close to that 70K level. And so it's appropriate for us to really double down or spend time and energy developing those secondary things that are important to them, the culture, right, the career pathing, all the things. And then indexing a little bit harder on the perceived benefits that are available for our hourly personnel. So we've talked about other things like breakfasts being available. Well, let's say you spend $400 a week on making a good viable breakfast available to all your techs. How much less expensive is that than another 3-4 bucks an hour per person, right? Now granted, I'd rather give my employee more. I'm not saying either or, but if if we're scaling the business and we're just looking at what we actually have available to us, we can fill some of these gaps in the early phases by providing some of the things that would normally take from our employee's check, right, mm -hmm. to cover some basics. Anyway, so there's something to consider there. But here's where I wanted to go with this. I think the reality of it is is that we also can't have tax entry level technicians probably making 70k a year. Like I don't know that reasonably we could do that in our business, right? So from right. your perspective, how do we create a path? What do we do so that someone coming in at that entry level understands this is an entry level. What are we going to do to make sure that they can progress as quickly as possible into that space where we can actually pay them more and it become closer to a living wage? Let's take the MIT side, for instance, right? We kind of touched on this before. $4 million MIT department. You've got 20 techs, give or take. Maybe one MIT manager. Maybe he's not good enough. You need two to manage that. There's a huge gap from your lead tech who's at 25 an hour and jumps up you know, to the MIT manager role. How do you create something in your org chart in between those two that gives them another step, right? that gives them a, a higher level of compensation they're not ready maybe they don't ever want to even be a manager right like but is there a way to create a role where that person can still get out work with their hands cuz that's what they like to do and can make closer to that living wage and still have a huge impact in your organization and you stop losing people when they hit that lead technician wall that you know this guy or gal can never move into being a mid manager, production manager, project management. So they're then just going to start bouncing because they want to do that. They think they want to do that. But it's important to be able to evaluate and explain to them like maybe managing people is not your best skill set. 
but hey, let's do this. And you're going to be an excellent drying expert, project manager. You're going to train all our techs and you're going to be this next rung up that's going to get you more money. I think that's a nice middle ground to help get people there without just losing somebody when they hit that lead technician wall. Yeah, that paywall. Yeah. Yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. I think it goes back to that whole career pathing kind of scenario, but it's this idea of what I'm hearing you say is wrestle a little bit. Like, is it all starvation and then we hyper index on this one titled role to keep all the cats corralled? Or is there a way for us to create these kind of keystone positions where there are force multipliers? Not to the same extent that a, a manager might be, but they really are doing things to increase efficiency, consistency, productivity, and we can pay those individuals more. And what I'm hearing you say is that's a nice mid-step. It's, it's that I jump on this rock and now I can see the shoreline and I know I can make that jump at some point when necessary to get to the other side. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I think that's a nice way to create a a path so there's not just a gap in an org chart on the mid side because you know technicians are our biggest pain point if you're looking from a management or business owners how do i find them how do i keep them how do i train them there's so many strategies out there there's not really good solutions but if you compare our trade to like the plumbing world the hvac world they come in as an apprentice they're making that 18 to 25 an hour but an HVAC company or plumbing company doesn't have that person showing up at your house first, right? They have this person coming with a journeyman. Journeyman's making more around 60, 65 at the end of the year, you know, close to that $30 mark. And that journeyman can estimate, they can deal with the client. They still do the work hands on, but they add all these other little layers. And how much does that take off your management teams? responsibilities in play and what type of customer experience does that deliver right we're one of the few industries like and i, I think exactly you can't bill them as skilled trade why is that like technicians aren't really a skilled trade even though they have a great skill but like if they can estimate and do the rest of it now all of a sudden they're just as skilled as a plumber an electrician an hvac journeyman so like, why is our industry not set up like theirs? Well, that's a whole nother podcast episode. It is, it is. <laughs> it is right? <laughs> well, I think this has been great, Mitchell. I appreciate you hanging with us. And I think just as we land the plane, kind of the summary that's coming to my mind of the ground we covered today is, first of all, for those people that are getting ready to engage a recruiting partner, or maybe they're they're already engaged with another recruiting partner and they're not seeing the success. It's not been a good partnership for them thus far. One of the things that I feel like you highlighted, which is a great takeaway, is that it's a collaboration. Like if you're engaged with a recruiting partner and it's a good, healthy relationship and they have the juice to source candidates for you, it's also important for you to give feedback. And the other piece of that I heard too, in terms of this relationship with a recruiter, is promptness. Like, making sure we're giving quick feedback after candidates so that the agency can kind of modulate and find more appropriate candidates for that role is really critical. Whereas I think a lot of people listening to this, and we've certainly made this mistake, it's like, that's your job. Just put candidates in front of me. The only way it's ultimately successful is when it's a partnership. And we're not just waiting for them to tee up magically candidates that are a perfect fit for organizations. So that's kind of one of the first themes I heard. We also talked to you about some of the kind of seismic shifts that are happening in the industry right now with regard to compensations going crazy. And, and I appreciate what you said about make your best offer first. Don't play games, right? It sets the wrong tone when we bring people in, right? Changes the power dynamic when we start low and negotiate up. And then obviously the, the non-compete versus do not solicit. I think there's something in there for both job seekers and for us as employers to think about like, if we don't have any of that protection, right? If all that ends Q1 of next year, there's some people listening to this that, that they need to really take a fresh look at what kind of environment am I creating? What kind of culture are we creating? Because if people leave and go to a competitor, <laughs> right? We don't have any control over that anymore. And I think that that should get people thinking about the way they're treating their employees and the kind of culture they're creating. Anything else? Any other key hits that I... 
no. left out there? Well, I do have one key thing I want to make sure we cover before we let you go, Mitchell. And that is if someone is looking for a new partner or a yeah. fresh spin on staffing solutions, where are they going so that the, we can get them connected with you and OPS staffing? First, our website is opsstaffing.net. I answer my phone within 24 hours. So you can call me anytime, any day, any night, 832-477-2011. It's my number one rule. It's something I tell all my recruiters, answer your phone. I will always answer my phone. If you just have questions, like where do I need to be comp wise? I've had companies call me just trying to pick, pick my brain on that. I am an open book. Call me anytime. I love that. Yeah. And we've experienced that. I would encourage folks like it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. You guys like us and many other resources in our industry are willing to share best practices to just prep us. Right. And for all intents and purposes, you're prepping them to be a better client. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Brother, thanks again, man, for hanging out with us. I'm sure that we will have some ongoing conversations in the near future as we continue to, to kind of center some eyeballs on this idea of employee retention and recruitment support. Yeah, thank you guys. This was wonderful. All right, everybody. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Head, Heart & Boots. And if you're enjoying the show, but you love this episode, please hit follow, formerly known as subscribe, write us a review, or share this episode with a friend. Share it on LinkedIn, share it via text, whatever. It all helps. Thanks for listening.